From Wisconsin Public Radio and PRI, Public Radio International, it's to the best of our knowledge. I'm Jim Fleming. How do you explain creative genius? What mysterious accident produced Miles Davis's Kind of Blue? Or Shakespeare's plays, or the Mona Lisa's smile? The ancients called it divine inspiration. Today, scientists are coming up with new answers. When I first started doing my creativity research, I thought there were creative people and then there were the rest of us. But the more that I've done research in the field, the more I realize that we're all equipped with this really fantastic creativity generating machine, which is our creative brains. How many remarkable things take place in the brain in order for a genuine piece of work to be made? I mean, there's a reason why art has persisted throughout human history, throughout human cultures, throughout time. It exists for a reason that is hardwired in us. Creativity goes under the microscope and inside the scanner today. New research offers the promise of a more creative future for all of us. And poet Molly Peacock finds a role model in the story of an 18th century artist. Imagine starting your life's work at 72. At just that age, Mary Delaney, born May 14, 1700, died April 15, 1788, invented what we know as collage. First, Charles Lim is a surgeon and a musician who researches the way musical creativity works in the brain. In a series of groundbreaking experiments, he put jazz musicians inside an fMRI to find out what the brain does during musical improvisation. The renowned bass player Mike Pope is one of his research subjects. That's him playing right now. And Strange Champs explores the science and the music. Mike, that is just such a great version of the way you look tonight. You guys sound like you're really cooking. How much of that is rehearsed and how much is improvised? That arrangement was written, uh, I mean, in terms of the, that counterline, that ba da be da 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 that thing, and then, of course, the melody. Those two things were written very much in the, in the way that, like, a two-part Bach invention or something on a much simpler level would, would be written. And then the solo sections and the bridge, you know, when it, when it starts to just swing, it's written, but it's not super specific. It's just, you know, general chord changes and melody and everything. Bass lines being made up, and the chords specifically are being made up. There's just a skeleton of stuff written. So, Charles, listening to this, is this the sound of musical genius to you? That's pretty cool, isn't it? It's kind of typical to me about how Mike thinks, meaning that, you know, you start with something familiar and known, and you take it to a place that's completely unexpected. I mean, I think that's what jazz is all about. I think every jazz musician is trying to squeeze something out of themselves that is new and unexpected and better than what they've heard or played before. This is the kind of music you've begun investigating in your science lab. What are the kinds of questions that led you there? I mean, what is it you you heard and wondered about in music like this? For me, it has to do with kind of the mystery of who we are. I mean, how can we create these things? How do we generate novelty? And so what we've done is tried to design a series of experiments that allow us to look at the brain state in which um, one is able to play music, which is already a high-level cognitive activity on many levels, versus play something that they're generating spontaneously or improvising. And so the experiments are really designed to get at that difference. What changes in the brain when you go from doing something memorized or overlearned and transition into doing something improvised or created on the spot? And so you put jazz musicians inside an fMRI and said, make music? Something like that. I mean, to a certain extent. So there's a bunch of different experiments. But, you know, jazz players, first of all, if you put them in the scanner with the piano, they'll do that anyway, even before, you know, while, while they're setting up, you put a jazz piano down in this environment, put the piano on their lap, give them a set of headphones, and you go into the control room. Before you've even sat down to turn on your machines, they're already improvising. Mm-hmm. I mean, it just happens all the time. Really what we're doing is trying to set up a construct where we're in fact measuring brain activity in a pretty controlled way, yet to them doesn't feel that controlled because what they're doing is something that they do all the time in music, and that's to either play a melody that they know or to improvise on that melody. I think what what is lost here is kind of how remarkable a transformation neurologically that is. Okay, so I have to say, I've I've been inside an MRI scanner, and there's not much room in that little tunnel. 
That's right. My, no, it's tight. Mike, how do you play music in there? As my father would say, with great difficulty. <laughs> um, <laughs> what are you actually playing? It's a tiny little keyboard? Uh, it's, it's a keyboard that Charles developed that's a, uh, you know, it needs to not have any ferrous metal in it, obviously, in order to be able to be operated in the presence of that strong magnet. I'll tell you, for me, that, that piano keyboard took about two years to develop together with an engineer. And the day it actually worked... Uh, I remember this very clearly. I was—I couldn't believe that it actually worked without artifacts or some sort of glitch. <laughs> I was literally like amazed. I was like, "Oh my God, this thing's actually working!" And then I kind of paused. I was like, "Now what?" You know. <laughs> so there was a series of experiments. The first one literally was improvise on a 12-bar blues or play a memorized melody to the same 12-bar blues. And so that was the first experiment. That was kind of neat for us. Um, and so the one that Mike alluded to earlier was sort of a follow-up experiment where. Rather than just having one musician play the blues, is to have two musicians, one inside the scanner whose brain was being measured, and another one outside the scanner who was playing back and forth in a kind of trading fours paradigm so that we could look at the brain mechanisms behind a musical conversation. Did you see a difference in brain activity? We absolutely saw really neat differences in brain activity. So in the first situation where a solo musician is just improvising, when you start improvising as opposed to memorizing, your brain changes remarkably. And one of the key changes is in the frontal lobes. We found a large part of the frontal lobe shut down. And this is sort of a self-monitoring, self-inhibitory region. And we had this other area turn up, which was a sort of autobiographical, self-referential area. So we had what we called a dissociated state of brain activity, where one area went up and one area went down in the frontal lobes that was characterizing all the improvisational states. So what is this autobiographical area that lights up? It was the medial prefrontal cortex. It's kind of a midline structure, meaning that it's sort of in the front of the brain towards the center. And this part of the brain is it's very active when you're doing nothing, for example. So if you're doing a task, in between the tasks, it's very active because it's sort of the part of your brain that's active when you're not actually doing anything in particular. And so it's called what we call the default network. And so this default network is also involved by things such as telling a story about yourself, an autobiographical narrative. Also, if you have a musically evoked memory, meaning you hear a song and it reminds you of when you were 10, um, that area of the brain tends to be active. And so that's what I mean by a sort of self-referential, almost an inwardly directed area of the brain. So what does it mean that that's the area of the brain that seems to be most active when musical improvisation is going on? What we're interpreting this as meaning is that when you're improvising, you're telling your musical story. You are using your own voice, your own signature, your life experiences, your musical background, your skills to tell this musical story. And that's why it is autobiographical without using words when you're improvising. And also, you really are trying to generate n more ideas, new ideas, rather than shut them down. You kind of want to turn on the faucet rather than turn off the faucet. And so I think that's part of why these self-monitoring areas turn off because you're less concerned with making a mistake than you are with not playing safely. I mean, really, the goal is to go somewhere you haven't been before musically. Mike, does that resonate for you? I mean, when you're improvising, does it feel to you as though it's a slightly different brain state? Yeah, it undoubtedly is. The sensation that I have when I play is that my consciousness is essentially a conductor, and my motor nervous system is an orchestra, because the consciousness, the part that does inhibit, the part that's contemplative and all that stuff, can't do a good job of really making or playing music. It's not what it's there to do. And, I mean, I've had experiences where I've played music and I've reacted to things that I've heard before I was conscious of the fact that they'd happened. I've actually played something in response to something I've heard and not known what it was until later when I thought about it. So um, when, you're, when you're improvising, are you thinking? I'm thinking, but it's not linear thought. I'm not thinking along as I go. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm thinking maybe about a myriad of things, some of which may have nothing to do with with the music, you know, I might just, you know, might be going, oh man, did I feed the meter <laughs> or whatever, you know, <laughs> but who knows? Again, it's not linear thought. Does it feel good? Yeah, it, it should. Yeah. I mean, when it's, <laughs> when it's right, and that's one of the things about music that, to me, the, the, the thing that makes music not feel good is when there's no communication at all. That's the thing that makes it sort of sterile and it takes the life out of it, you know? 
Well, that's actually why we did that experiment where we had two musicians playing back and forth because we wanted to see what happens in the brain when you're having this kind of communication musically. And actually, these results are, are really kind of hot off the press, meaning that we're just actually analyzing them, but they've been really neat. We're definitely seeing language areas of the brain, classical language areas of the brain, lighting up when you're having a musical exchange that's improvised, but not a musical exchange that's memorized. Hmm. I believe that absolutely, personally. I mean, I, that 100% believe that to be true. It was true in your brain for sure. So I, I saw it the other day. <laughs> Does it feel like you're having a conversation, Mike, when you're playing with another musician? Yeah, it absolutely does. I even remember experiences you know, early on when I was 16, 17 years old and doing a lot of playing. I remember one one experience in particular where I did a gig. It was like I had played real late the night before, and then I had to play super early the next day, and I was extremely, extremely tired. And I remember almost sort of hallucinating words to what I was playing. You know what I mean? I was so exhausted. I was closing my eyes, and I was really enthralled in what I was doing. And I can remember almost actually thinking a stream of words. Not quite. Like when you're in a dream state or a near-sleep state, you think that you're thinking of words, and they're not actually words. They're just mumbo-jumbo, but... I don't know if that's ever happened to you, but that used to happen to me as a kid a lot. And uh, I'd just be like, I'd wake up and I'd be like, what was that? That was the coolest word. It was the coolest way to say that. What was it? I could never think of it. And probably because it wasn't a word at all. It was some other kind of a thought. But anyway. Charles, are we, I have the sense, and I know you, you've said in other places, that we're maybe on the cusp of developing a whole new science of creativity, that something very exciting is happening. I think so, and I hope so. Creativity used to be something that artists and theorists, philosophers thought about more than scientists. I think scientists viewed it as kind of off limits or maybe too difficult to get to because scientists by nature are reductionists and we want to start with the building blocks and add one little piece to the next until you understand the whole thing. So what I think is happening though is that we have methods now that enable us to do things that we weren't able to do 20 years ago, 30 years ago, functional MRI being one of them but not the only one. And so with these new methods, we can really a approach a whole new range of cognitive questions that I think get to the nature of art, creativity, genius, insight, into a way that's more relevant and maybe more artistically genuine than has been done before. Why is it that we humans seek creativity? Why does the brain seek creativity? Do we need it? Does everyone's brain seek creativity, Charles? I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know. I've wondered this question a lot, meaning what, I guess another way to translate that is, what is the biological reward or the neurological reward we get when we recognize novelty in something? And we, we have this all the time, a sense of delight in jazz when you hear something unexpected or new, or when, you, when you're at a museum and you see a painting, you say, wow, look at that. There's a sense of, I mean, I can't describe it as anything else, but some sort of neurological endorphin thing that you get where you think to yourself, huh, I just had a eureka moment that was induced by this other person's insight. <laughs> and so there, there, I think there is a biological basis to this, and I think it has to do with the very core of how we survive as a species. I mean, we need to innovate and adapt in order to survive. If we don't, if we never evolve, we perish. Mm -hmm. And so I think we are actually hardwired to be attracted to new solutions. Charles Lim is a hearing specialist and surgeon at Johns Hopkins. He performs cochlear implants on people who've lost their hearing. He's also on the faculty of the Peabody Conservatory of Music. Mike Pope is a celebrated jazz bassist. His most recent solo album was Lay of the Land. To find out more about the music and the science, visit our website at ttbook.org. I'm Jim Fleming. It's to the best of our knowledge from Wisconsin Public Radio and PRI, Public Radio International.
Support for To the Best of Our Knowledge comes from the University of Wisconsin System eCampus, providing access to online degree programs and certificates offered by the 26 campuses of the UW system. Information is at ecampus.wisconsin.edu. Why do some people seem more creative than the rest of us? More likely to draw or paint, to compose music, or to write books? Did they get the creativity gene while the rest of us got left out? Harvard psychologist Shelley Carson's research suggests that nothing could be further from the truth. Not only does everyone come with the same capacity to create, Carson's identified seven different patterns of creative thinking. She writes about them in her book, Your Creative Brain. She tells Hans Trainchamps that creativity is necessary for all walks of life, not just arts and sciences as we used to think about it, but in business, in sports, even in the way you raise your family and the way you meet your potential mates. We all have the capacity to be creative, and in fact, we're all creative each and every day, but we don't think to apply them in certain ways that could make us more creative and enrich our lives. The work that I've done suggests, well, not just my work, but work across the field suggests that highly creative people are able to activate their brains in certain ways depending upon the stage of the creative process that they're in. And we also know that all of us have the ability to manipulate our brain activation states. And if we can just mimic these states that highly creative people Uh, evoke, then uh, we should be able to amp up our own creativity. You um, teach a lot of exercises intended to help people activate certain kinds of creativity. What are some of your favorites? First of all, let me say this, that um, one of the things that I've done is looked at these different brain activation patterns, and I've identified seven of them. These are brain sets that we see are activated by highly creative people when they're doing creative work. And by the way, I call them brain sets because they're sort of like mindsets. Mm -hmm. You know, when you get in a different mindset, it changes the way you look at the world. Well, a brain set is like the biological equivalent of a mindset. And it really does change perception, memory, and attention when you get into these different brain activation patterns. What is one? What's for an example? Okay, so one of my favorites, or the one that I tend to spend the most time in, I call the absorb brain set. The absorb brain set is when you open your mind to new experiences and ideas and uncritically view your world to take in knowledge. So it's an uncritical way of looking at your environment. So one of the exercises that I've taken from mindfulness that's very effective is to have people, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, unless you're driving, you just close your eyes, take in a few deep breaths, and then you start recognizing and experiencing what is going on through your senses. For instance, you will feel your feet, to spend some time feeling your feet touching the floor or feeling your shoes on your feet. If you're sitting down, feel how your body is touching the furniture. Become aware of how your clothing feels on your body in a non-judgmental way. And you move through each of the senses and you'll start hearing sounds you didn't know were there because your sensors filtering out a lot of this information. And you'll see things you hadn't seen before. Uh, Colors become brighter. You'll notice angles and shadows, how light flickers wherever you are. And all of a sudden, you'll become aware of more stimuli coming in from your senses. This is one of the things that you want to do is prime your what I call the cognitive workspace to have more information in it, more bits of information. And as soon as you're not filtering out a lot of this information, you'll have more available to you that you can combine and recombine in novel and original ways. So if that's a first step, what's an example well, of a maybe a very different mindset? Okay, so another brain set is the Envision brain set. And in this brain set, you're thinking visually rather than verbally. And you're able to see and manipulate objects in your mind's eye. And when you do this, you see patterns emerge and 
you tend to think metaphorically. All of a sudden, you'll see comparisons between two things that seem very far removed from each other ordinarily. So what do you do if you want to enhance that or enter that particular brain state? Well, one of my favorite exercises I call what if. And what you do is look around you in your environment and imagine what would be the consequences if something in your environment were changed. So what if the sky was green instead of blue? What if trees hung upside down? Um, What if humans had three arms instead of two? And you think of all the consequences, how the world would change when each of these things happens. What if cockroaches ran for Senate? Again, no comment. Okay. So when you start imagining this and actually seeing it in your mind's eye and seeing all of these different consequences that might occur, this is not a trivial or a silly exercise. When you do it, you're actually forging pathways in the brain that will allow you to activate this envisioned brain set more easily in the future. You know what strikes me about both of those is, I don't know how much time you've spent with young children, but these are things that children do automatically all day long. Every adult who's ever hung out with a toddler knows that sooner or later you get tired of the what if or the why questions. And that's the reason a toddler will take an hour to walk half a block, because they're so absorbed in where they actually are and all the sensations. Exactly. They are not filtering out what you and I as adults are filtering out. As we mature, our prefrontal cortex matures, and this is the part of the brain that's discerning. It helps us to plan for the future, but it does that by judging the information that's being given to it from the rest of the brain. So as we go through life, what we do is we filter out more and more information so that we can increase the signal-to-noise ratio in our brains. And pretty soon, we're only aware of stimuli that is um, part of our particular goals for the current time, our current task at hand, or for our survival. But we actually filter this information out. I mean, we literally don't see it, hear it, or feel it because it's not conducive to accomplishing our current goals. Mm. And kids don't have this level of um, prefrontal cortex development yet, and so they're still getting all this information and wondering about it. And this is one of the things we want to do when we're being creative, or at least during a portion of the creative process, we want to turn down that prefrontal cortex evaluator and allow more information to filter into our conscious awareness. Shelley, what's the value for you in doing the work you do? I mean, clearly you have a strong sense of mission about helping people access their creativity, but I guess I'm curious about what the overall benefit is to the planet, if that's not too corny. Well, my feeling is, and I mean, perhaps there will come a time when we'll become too creative And then somebody will have to come along and say, whoa, let's be more linear. Let's be more sequential. Let's be more logical. But right now, where things are changing so rapidly, I think that we need to have a real strong population base of people who are able to adapt, take the next step and see where the next step is going rather than following an already delimited pathway. So I think this is really important for us. When we look at what's going on with our economy, globalism has changed the way everything is interrelated to each other. And this is going to take a lot of creativity from a lot of different sectors and a lot of different people to figure out how it's going to work to the advantage of the human species. Shelley Carson is a psychologist at Harvard, where she does research on creativity and resilience. She spoke with Anne Strangechamps about her book, Your Creative Brain. Let's switch centuries. It's the 18th century, the age of Handel and Hogarth. 
Mad King George is on the British throne when an elderly widow named Mary Delaney picks up a pair of scissors and begins her life's work, the Flora Delanica, 985 botanically correct floral collages. She's 72 years old, and she has just invented a new art form. These are the bare bones of the story the poet Molly Peacock tells in The Paper Garden, a book that is both a biography of an extraordinary woman and a meditation on late-life creativity. Molly says she still remembers the first time she saw Mary Delaney's flowers. I was so impressed by the fact that basically she was inventing an art form in her eighth decade that I asked myself, I mean, what happened earlier in her life that allowed her to do this? Uh, and, that, and that's when I, I started tracking all of the instances of creativity in her life before that, because I, I thought, how remarkable for this 18th century woman to essentially invent collage. We, of course, think that Picasso invented collage in the 20th century when here she was doing it in 1772. Yeah. So that was my, I had this lust to know. Um, Where was then, it that you saw them the first time? I saw them at the Morgan Library in New York City. Uh, and the Morgan had a show of 100 of them. They really are incredible. People in the radio audience are, are, are thinking, well, botanicals, pale flowers on white paper. They aren't like that at all. They're on black backgrounds, dramatic black backgrounds. And they're composed of hundreds of little dots and squiggles and half moons and tendrils and circles of brightly colored paper. One afternoon in 1772, she noticed how a piece of colored paper matched the dropped petal of a geranium. After making that vital imaginative connection between paper and petal, she lifted the 18th century equivalent of an exacto blade, she'd have called it a scalpel, with the instrument alive in her still rather smooth-skinned hand. She began to maneuver, carefully cutting the exact geranium petal shape from the scarlet paper. Then another, and another, and another, commencing the most remarkable work of her life. Is that story of origins you tell true? Did she literally simply see the relationship between a colored piece of paper and a yes. petal? Yes, but, the, but um, we, can, we can flesh it out a little bit. We know from all of her letters, and she left hundreds of pages of letters, and they're marvelous. They're zesty and opinionated and gossipy, that she was a noticer. I mean, if she described a man's vest, for instance, she might count the buttons on the vest and describe the, the actual buttons. She was very particular in that way. <laughs> so there she is when she's 72, and she's in mourning. She's lost her beloved sister. And then she's lost her beloved husband. In this state of mourning, she, who is a decisive woman, uh, degenerates. Her Even her handwriting degenerates, and you can see it. And her friend, uh, who's a lifelong friend, she had many wonderful friends, her friend takes her to a garden to kind of, you know, help restore her a bit. And she is enjoying the garden when she gets bit on the foot by a gnat, she says it is, and her foot swells up by, to twice or three times its size. And they take her home and prop her up, and they put her by a table with all of the things that she could use to entertain herself while she's being, uh, you know, immobile, uh, essentially, and put a flower in front of her with her scissors and her papers and her watercolors. And it's because she had to be still that she noticed it. You know, part of the inspiration of this story for those of us, and you and I, forgive me, you and I are about the same age, I think. Not 72 yet. We can see it on yeah. the horizon, yes. <laughs> so um, 
when you when you consider a woman like this, who at the age of seventy two says and does things that are the product of all the life that she has lived, but are new and yes. different and lasting. That's pretty inspiring. It is incredibly inspiring. You know, who doesn't hold out the hope of starting a memorable project at a grand old age? You know, a life's work is always unfinished. And she shows it requires creativity till the day you die. The question, I guess, that I have about it is whether you have to be a Mary Delaney in order for this to happen. She was an extraordinary woman. Yeah. Uh, she was uh, she was married off at what the age of 16 to a yes. uh, lecherous old man. Yeah, uh, her grandfather's age. And uh, a few years later when he died, that experience led her to live on her own, but she lived an ex- mm-hmm. an extraordinary life. Yeah. You you talk about her letters. Uh, there were dinner parties. There were the the prominent people. She was a friend of of Handel's. Uh, she mm-hmm. was a friend of Jonathan Swift's. This is not yes. just some ordinary yeah. yes. aging woman. No, that that's true. She was um, she was born a minor aristocrat. She was the daughter of the second son of this family, and she had no fortune. She associated with people who had great fortunes all of her life, and who were famous in their time and still famous, like Swift and Handel, uh, and Hogarth. She got painting tips from Hogarth. But she herself was on, on, the, fr- on the fringes of the, these circles. But people liked her. When you read her letters, you start to like her too. I mean, there were, there's something sort of wonderfully sane and centered about her and flexible. She bounced back from many of the adversities that she encountered. That's part of lasting in a fresh way into, into old age as well, to, to be able to have that, that flexibility, that this, bouncing back. Yeah, this is a woman who clearly matters to you. This sounds like it was a personal journey for you. Oh, absolutely. The real needle in my heart in all of this is that she began her great work at, well, she records 72. The first date that uh, we have on one of them is, is 73. And my mother died at the age of 73. So just as Mrs. Delaney is, is beginning this creative burst, my mother passed away. And that connection kind of made me look at Mrs. Delaney as a kind of role model. I, I, I know that it's, you know, it's, it's odd to, to um, take an 18th century woman for, as a role model in the 21st century, but believe me, if you encounter her work in her life, it's so emotionally vital. So it was easy to attach to her. You had a lovely Mother's Day essay recently in which you called Mary Delaney your 311-year-old mother. Yes. <laughs> that was pretty good. But it strikes me that there may be more connections than you have talked about so far. The The way this book is put together is, um, well, it's kind of a collage, isn't it? It's, it's, yeah. a, it's a written yeah. version in yeah. some ways of what she did with her scalpel. I have to tell you that I didn't realize I was making a written collage in response to her um, visual collage. All I knew was that I had all these little pieces of things. I had botanical information. I had historical information. Her whole life and all the people in her life. And also, my husband becomes a character in, in this book. He's a cancer survivor and has been a cancer survivor for a long, long time, for 33 years. But there's still... An anxiety in me, there was when I began this book, an anxiety of me in me of, oh, uh, what if I lose him? What will happen? What will, uh, just that low-grade unsureness of the future. I was also exploring as I was writing the story of Mrs. Delaney's life. So all of that is in here, in pieces, um, uh. <laughs> well, and I and I read somewhere that um, that in some ways you see what she was doing as similar to what you've been doing all along. The that putting a poem together, while not snipping one word and pasting it on top of another, does have some creative similarity. Poems are very carefully constructed pieces of art. 
They are. When I kept going to the British Museum, all of her works are in the British Museum, and they are uh, stored in these huge volumes in the print study room. But anyone can go there and ask uh, to see see them, and I explained that I was writing about her. And uh, so I would go and I would look at them, and I began look at, looking at them with a very high-powered magnifying glass, almost in the way that when there's a poem I've encountered that I love, I really, really, really take it apart. And I mean, like taking apart clockworks and just looking at uh, at the way she did this with her through the, the ultra optics magnifying glass uh, was very satisfying to me. To understand how something intricate works, I feel um, uh, is, 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 is very gratifying. It lets you know something, lets you know something for sure in a very uncertain world. Mrs. D composed the main flower of Rosa Gallica cluster damask rose in 71 pieces, each a separate single color from tongue pink to inside the lower lip pink to under the fingernail pink all accented with three slivers of red. The effect is as deep as a blush. After it was assembled, she painted certain shadows over the petals with a grayish-pink watercolor. The number of colors and the shadows give the muddled head a heaviness. It has the quality of curtsying or bowing from its stem. I think the thing that I want to know the most about from you is whether this has changed your attitude toward aging. I think it probably did, but I want to know if that's true. Absolutely. Absolutely. One of the things that people said to me is, oh, well, if Mrs. Delaney, if this hadn't happened to her, if this other thing hadn't happened to her, she would have done this work earlier. And I don't believe it. I believe that some things just take living long enough to do. And I think that late life creativity is fascinating. What people come to and accomplish in late life, it's not a direct line, of course. It's not that one thing builds on the next, builds on the next. It's much more organic. So these flowers um, uh, and and the botany that I learned just made tremendous sense to me just in terms of, of human growth and and human recollection because we do get to places where we, we are looking back and looking back becomes the material of your making. Molly Peacock is the author of six volumes of poetry. Her book about Mary Delaney is called The Paper Garden. If you want to see the flowers we've been talking about, we'll put a link on our website at ttbook.org. I'm Jim Fleming. It's to the best of our knowledge from Wisconsin Public Radio and PRI, Public Radio International. You know, Pythagoras probably walked on this very beach. And if he were here today, he would be amazed at how much mathematical science has learned about the universe. Even a century ago, we didn't know if there were two galaxies in the entire universe. Now we know there are a hundred billion, maybe even a trillion galaxies. What is the creativity that brought forth a trillion galaxies? That's from the beginning of a new book and film project, Journey of the Universe. In it, cosmologist Brian Swim and religious scholar Mary Evelyn Tucker explore the creativity of the universe itself. They describe our universe as not simply a place but a story, with a beginning, a middle, which we're now in, 
and perhaps an end in the very distant future. As Swim told Steve Paulson, it's a story that keeps changing. At one time we thought you know, matter was made up of these tiny particles of unchanging bits of matter called atoms. And then we, we looked into them more carefully and we found out that each atom is this amazing blur of activity. So in a similar way, we realized that everything in the universe actually has a story of its coming into being. I mean, the trees and the houses and the, the continents, the oceans, everything has a story of how it emerged. You look at a rock, it looks so solid, it's just so secure, just always the same. And we, we go down to it at the quantum level. It's just, like I say, it's this dancing blur of activity. But also, the rock itself is in the midst of its own story, its own drama. You go back far enough and it was molten. You go back before that and it was part of the stars. So it's an incredible discovery. Now, Mary Evelyn, in your book, you describe this as a creative universe. And again, this is a word that we don't tend to associate with inorganic matter. In what way can we talk about this as creative? That sensibility of creativity, we often associate only with the human. But the sense that galaxies have emerged and that they have different forms, spiral and elliptical and so on. There's a creativity going on there. Stars have a creativity. And when they explode and go supernova, all these elements go out into the universe and eventually form the carbon-based life here on the planet. So creativity and self-organizing dynamics are two aspects of these processes that we're still trying to understand. It's so interesting to hear you say that because creativity is a word that I associate with as unexpected things happen, whereas I guess my old conception of the universe is that it was deterministic. I mean, if you could figure out all the the physical laws back to day one, you could kind of predict what was going to happen. Are you saying that's not true? Exactly. Creativity has the unexpected, the spontaneous, the unformed. And Creativity, I think, is almost by its nature not deterministic, not necessarily predictive. Of course, these processes have elements which we can understand, laws of physics and and laws of, of geology. And this is what science is studying constantly. What are these laws that we can see these processes emerging? But are you saying that we don't actually live in a deterministic universe? You know, one thing follows from the last thing necessarily, that unexpected things happen? I mean, going back to the early years of the universe? Yeah, that's right. We don't live in a deterministic universe. I mean, that's the great discovery of of quantum physics. No one expected this. You look at the simplest little thing uh, in the atomic world, like the hydrogen atom. It consists of of a proton and an electron. And so the, the electron moves from one orbital to another orbital. And we don't know when it's going to move. We don't. What we would like in the old classical view of physics, we would like the equation that would enable us to predict how the atom would change. And now the widespread belief among physicists is that we will never have that. What that means then is that at the level of the the simplest structure, like the hydrogen atom, there is a spontaneity. There is this unpredictability in its, its activity, its behavior. If we have a, a large group of hydrogen atoms, we can say things that are highly, highly likely to happen. But at the level of the individual hydrogen atom, we are unable to predict how it's going to behave. Well, let's go back to the beginning of this story. Now, we don't know what happened in the first moment of the Big Bang, but let's skip ahead a little bit after that. You say that there were powerful primal forces that were vying against each other, really, from the very beginning. There was contraction, gravity, but there was also an opposing force that pushed outward towards expansion. What was going on? Just just imagine you have a moment when you have this, this vast cloud of hydrogen and helium atoms. They are drawn together by gravitational attraction, and yet they're part of a whole system that is, that is expanding. I'm going back to your discussion of creativity. If we are looking at that cloud, we can become certain that it is entering into a phase where the birth of stars is likely, but we do not know exactly which stars will come forth because there's the system itself goes into a, a phase where it's not possible to predict the future. 
And so even slight changes can lead to what would emerge as a, as a supergiant star or a, or a small red dwarf. So that right in that critical transition from an atomic world into a world of stars, we have another aspect of the creativity of the universe. Well, I mean, another thing that's fascinating is that I guess I'd always assumed that atoms had always been around. I mean, from the very beginning, that's actually not true. It was, it was quite <laughs> yeah. some time before atoms, the first atoms, were formed. Yeah, yeah. That's, isn't it great? I mean, just you think of atoms as being, ah, oh, yeah, they're just the same old thing. They've always been here. No, they're, they're an immense creative moment. For hundreds of thousands of years, all we had in the universe were these elementary particles and a couple of their pairings together. There were no atoms. And then this moment comes, something like 400,000 years after the beginning of the universe, when suddenly atoms form. We think of atoms as being small, but at the level of scale of an elementary particle, atoms are like these vast cathedrals. You have a universe with these these particles interacting, it seems like a good universe. And then suddenly, just very, very quickly, all of these cathedrals come rushing forth into existence. And those are the first, the primal atoms, like I say, hydrogen, helium, and, and lithium. And then for a, a long period of time, that's it. And then we have another amazing moment when the stars come forth and they construct the rest of the atoms in their own processes. Our bodies are composed of, you know, of hydrogen and carbon and nitrogen. All of them have a story. And that story goes back into the story of the stars and back further into the actual story of the birth of the universe. Are our bodies literally made of stardust? Literally. Literally made of stardust. So exploding stars eons ago, that stuff that happened way back when, that is what's in us right now. Yeah. Take it one step further. So we're, we're loaded with carbon atoms. We have no understanding of, of a way carbon can be created unless you have an exploding star. I mean, it's just such a stunning realization. Carbon atoms require an entire star for their manufacture, for their construction, for their creation. And then the stars themselves, they require a galaxy to come forth. So what, we, what we've Wait, learned... So you, so you have a galaxy before you have a star? Yeah, they come forth kind of together. Our galaxy consists of 100 billion stars. So the, the galaxy is the way in which the stars come forth and organize themselves. And then the stars are the ways in which the elements are actually created, like carbon. So that all of the carbon atoms in our body literally were constructed in stars and then were dispersed into the Milky Way galaxy through explosions. Now, I have to say the way you write about stars in your book is really kind of fascinating. Uh, you say the star exists not in a world of stasis, but in a realm of seething disequilibrium. And you go on to say stars are fiery cauldrons of transformation. Stars are wombs of immense creativity. That's not the way I've always thought about stars. Yeah, so that just a, just a few thousand years ago, humans thought of stars as eternal. We didn't know that stars had this had a life cycle. They're actually born, they develop, they die. And then we, it wasn't until just recently, I mean, the middle of the 20th century, that we understood what was going on inside of stars. We knew that they were emanating this light, but we didn't know how. And the great discovery is that they generate this light by transforming the atoms, by fusing atoms together. It's, it's an amazing discovery about the nature of the universe. And what now that we know the scientific details... How can we understand them? See, science itself needs help to understand the majesty of what is discovered. Now, for instance, the fiery cauldron, that image, speaking about a star, comes from the Chinese tradition. So we are bringing in the, the deep reflections on creativity, on cosmos, from China. And Mary Evelyn came up with that phrase, and I just, I just love it. Hmm. The sensibilities of many cultures around the world, especially East Asia, have been deeply infused with the creative, ongoing, dynamic processes of nature and the cosmos as a whole. And so that fiery cauldron of creativity is at the heart of Confucian and Taoist understanding of the universe. Hmm. Well, I'm struck by the language that you use in this book because it's, it's not the usual kind of language you find in a science book. For instance, you talk about transformation. And we've already talked about creativity. Was that part of 
your project here to sort of bring in the language of art, of the humanities, of, of even Abs religion into the story of science. Absolutely. See, the, the way in which we scientists would talk about a star, we'd say, well, it's a ball of gas. I mean, it, it literally is a ball of gas. So that, that's true. But you see, that's only one dimension of what's going on. So we consciously brought in the insights from the humanities around the planet as a way of exploring these great discoveries. We've just discovered the emergence of a 14 billion year creative event that we call the universe. What, what's the meaning for our lives? Well, let me pursue that because it's not obvious what the meaning is here. I mean, it's fascinating to hear you talk about that, but still, meaning and purpose seem to be words that, that we humans have constructed to try to make sense of our lives. But are those words somehow connected to this scientific story you've been describing? In fact, that's what this project is trying to do, it generate a dialogue and certainly move it in the direction of meaning and purpose and so on. Because we live in a schizophrenic world, frankly, that science is over there, the humanities over here, and religious studies way over there. Um, so let's sit down and not put meaning on the sidelines. Now, we're not trying to say this is all purpose-driven. The word is teleology that a lot of people use. And we're, we're not trying to imprint this story with here's God, here's the divine. No, it's trying to say, let's look at this with new eyes, fresh eyes, and say, how does the human come out of these processes? The stars are our ancestors. And We've been birthed from these processes. We participate in them. We respond to them with awe and wonder as we discover more of their complexity. And this awakens in us a new sense of meaning, of our role, of our purpose. If we're rooted in these processes, a new kind of connectedness, even love emerges. We're, we're embraced by these processes. Wow. So meaning and purpose is very much a part of what we're trying to do. Mary Evelyn Tucker and Brian Swim are the authors of Journey of the Universe, which is both a book and a documentary film. Steve Paulson spoke with them. It's To the Best of Our Knowledge. I'm Jim Fleming. You can stream or download To the Best of Our Knowledge on our website at ttbook.org, where you will also find a link to the weekly podcast. You can buy a copy of this program by calling the radio store at 1-800-747-7444. Ask for program number 814A, The Creative Mind. To the Best of Our Knowledge is produced at Wisconsin Public Radio. This hour was produced by Ann Strangeshamps, with help from Doug Gordon, Charles Monroe Kane, and Veronica Rickert. Our executive producer is Steve Paulson. Our technical director is Kirill Owen. Today's engineer is Steve Gotcher. PRI Public Radio International.